Uh, would you turn to uh, the middle of your Bibles, and if you've hit Psalms or Proverbs, turn right. If you've hit Isaiah, turn left, and in between you'll find the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm told it's page something like 667, 668? 668, and we're going to be uh, uh, looking at this book over the next few weeks. Some of you may remember uh, Donald Soper, Lord Soper, leader of the Methodist Church for much of the last century. Uh, He was a popular speaker and he practiced debating at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park every week, usually on topics like disarmament, nuclear disarmament. Now, some people still speak at Hyde Park Corner uh, effectively, not, not Hyde Park Corner, Speaker's Corner, which is the other end of Hyde Park, still speak there effectively today. Um, and, uh, for example, I know a, a group from this church uh, who talk their dialogue with Islamists every week. But most of us would agree that open-air speaking in today's climate is ineffective or worse, off-putting or just plain embarrassing. Uh, the well-known Oxford Street preacher, I don't know what's happened to him these days, but he was a familiar figure in Oxford Street. The fellow at Clapham Junction uh, with his megaphone Uh, who I met before Christmas. Uh, Well-known people like Harry Hammond, who railed in public against homosexuals. The sandwich board or placarded versions of it are just as bad. Uh, The bookshop in Lavender Hill, here with posters telling us the wages of sin is death, which is true, but ludicrous in a shop window. We generally feel, don't we, that all this does more harm than good. Welcome, then, to this open-air preacher. The word Ecclesiastes means literally the crowd-gatherer. Ecclesia is a a Greek word that many of you will know means assembly or gathering. And Ecclesiastes, the one who gathers the assembly. In those days, at the city gate or the marketplace. The crowd-puller, if you like. The orator, the open-air preacher. It was used to translate the original Hebrew title, koalet, which means literally teacher or preacher. Now, you can understand why the early church was called the ecclesia, because it was the Christian assembly or gathering. But you'll be relieved to hear that this has nothing to do with ecclesiastical regulations. In fact, it has nothing to do with church. The imaginary scene is more like Speaker's Corner at Hyde Park that I referred to, or a hustings meeting at election time, or an open meeting of the local council. As we spend time over the next few weeks listening to this least ecclesiastical of men, I believe we could define ourselves in the company of a highly independent and fascinating mind. So let's read how he opens Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And it goes like this. The words of the teacher, the preacher, that's this man, Ecclesiastes, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever forever. 
The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Well, what should we make of that? Let's pray. Father, help us to make of this what you intended when you inspired that preacher, that teacher, that public speaker. And will you speak to us today from what you spoke then in his day? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this book is unique in the Bible. You may know the Bible as a whole doesn't try to prove the existence of God. It starts with God. In the beginning, God. But the approach is, let's assume for the moment that God exists. Now see how life begins to make sense with God as the explanation of it. So it doesn't start with everything else in life and see if you can fit God in the picture. It starts with God and then the rest of life's picture fits in. A famous um, dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, Dean Ng, once said to a little girl who was talking about fitting God in the picture of life, fit God in the picture, he said. My dear girl, God is both the painter and the canvas on which the picture is painted. So the Bible generally starts alongside the person who is at least open to belief. It assumes God and shows what he must be like. Ecclesiastes, however, uniquely starts the other way round. It starts alongside the unbeliever. It starts not with God, but with us, and addresses the general public whose view is bounded by this world. Our open-air orator meets men and women on their own ground. Uh, There's a phrase which comes 30 times in the book, which is the key to understanding it. This is very simple. It comes, in fact, three times in the chapter I've just read. Just glance down at your page. Can you see? It's only three words. What's the three words that gives the clue 
to unlock the whole of this book. Well done. Whoever said that? I see a David Amos at the back. Uh, It's in verse 3, 9, and 14, under the sun. Now, that's a hint that our preacher is talking about the world as we see it from ground level. The book is, in fact, a critique of secularism and of secularized religion. Now, I said he addresses the unbeliever. Perhaps we might call this person the agnostic, but not the atheist. It's a subtle distinction, but he's addressing the person who isn't confused there is a God, not the person who is confused there isn't a God. Because God is mentioned regularly in the book, but always in passing. God is in the background. The speaker's main approach is from the other end, from under the sun. Or look at verse 13, that phrase, under heaven. To see how far you can get without a personal knowledge of God. With God only in the background of your life. God is back there or he's up there somewhere but only as a distant shadow. The orator puts himself and us in the shoes of such a person. Now, I suggest this speaks to two kinds of people today. It speaks perfectly, first of all, to the 21st century agnostic, sometimes called humanist or secularist. The person who finds yourself, maybe, you may be here this evening, Sitting in St. Mark's, you're not an atheist. Because God may be somewhere in your framework. Maybe in your background. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here. Maybe you came to a Christmas event here. And and just something jogged you to wonder what happens on a normal Sunday. And so back you've come. Or you're wondering whether to try the Alpha course this January. Explore the meaning of life. Or you're here because you've been invited or brought by a family member and you couldn't think up a quick enough reason to say no. But you are agnostic. And maybe a bit uncomfortable. Because everything so far in this assembly has assumed a personal, almost intimate knowledge of God. Whereas you might say you know God only from a distance. Have you noticed how some people in this state refer to God in impersonal and distant terms? They use phrases like the Almighty, but never in personal terms, like Father or Jesus. I was watching an interview with Michael Parkinson the other day, and and he was someone who had obviously a God framework. often mentioned God, never cynically, but always slightly flippantly, and certainly in a detached way. He'd say things like, uh, when the time comes that the Almighty takes me from here, with a smile. Well, everything else in this 
hour and a half may not be coming from where you are coming from, but this chapter certainly is. Secondly, it speaks to the believer whose faith has become or is in danger of becoming secularized, uncertain. Quite possibly, the preacher was an old man looking back over his life to encourage younger believers. And maybe some who have got disillusioned, depressed, even discouraged, who who are tempted to think the whole God thing is, after all, futile. Now, there may be some of you here, too, this evening. Maybe you say God has, in the past, been the point and purpose of life. But now, as for the unbeliever, God is in the distance. You believe he's still there, but just look again at verse 13. Maybe you resonate with these sentiments. What a heavy burden. God has laid on you. That's how you may perceive it. So this is realism, isn't it? But is there hope? Just maybe you're here this evening, not simply out of habit, but wondering if this first Sunday of the new year There might be a place worth looking. There might be a resolution worth making. There might be some decisive steps worth taking. Well, let's join our public preacher. Now, are you beginning to see what I mean by his fresh and independent approach? At first, you're not sure whether he is a believer or not. That's what he intends because he's stepping into our shoes. What's he saying? Well, the Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer was once asked, what would you say? What would you say to a really modern man you met on a train if you had just an hour to talk to him about the Christian faith? And Francis Schaeffer replied, I would spend 50 minutes to show him his real dilemma that he's more dead than even he thinks he is. Then I would take ten minutes to tell him the good news. Well, the preacher here does the same. His thesis is that for mankind on their own, life is futile. Look at verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything Is meaningless. You see, he's saying, for mankind on our own, life is futile. One writer put it, a wisp of vapor, a puff of wind, a mere breath, the nearest thing to zero. Life is empty, useless, insignificant, zilch. Now, having stated it, having set out his stall, he sets out to prove it with six claims about life. Let's go through them quickly. Number one, he says, life is boring, verse three. 
What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Do you see what he's saying? Life is a grind. It's just so plain boring. The most basic problem for most people is not that life is a great tragedy. Most people go through life without great tragedies. The poet Tessiman put it in the final verse of one of his poems. The final tragedies are not the bright light dashed out, not the gold glory smashed like a lamp upon the floor, but the guttering away, the seep, the gradual grey, the unnoticed, without haste or protest, premature, unwept, unwritten waste. The basic problem, he says, is that life is composed of pointless, hard slog. And leisure is no real alternative. Increasing leisure time may serve only to increase boredom. Listen to this Times report from Beijing. Rich Chinese are turning to crime to beat the boredom spawned by leisure. Well, not only the rich. Phil Thane, you and Future Skills, you could have told them that. Secondly, life is fragile, verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Every baby should be delivered gift-wrapped with a label, fragile, right side up. Because people don't last. Life is a precarious business. You can walk across a road, hit a car, and that's the end. You can be walking down Battersea Rise on a Saturday morning quite routinely, and that's the end. You can start the day quite unexceptionally and be hit by a virus before coffee. But even without the dramatic unexpected, life is still short enough for any. Generations come, generations go. We're like the temporary blip on a screen. Life is fleeting, transient, insubstantial, precarious, throwaway, disposable. Thirdly, he says, life is repetitive. Verse 5. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Three illustrations from the natural world. The sun goes east to west, the winds go round and round, the waters go up and down. So the sun gets up in the morning and takes the same journey like a runner who can't stop. The winds circulate aimlessly. The streams flow into the sea, but the sea is never full, like a bath in which the plug is left out. And these three mirror our own monotonous lives, condemned to repetition. So, of course, we look for novelty. Change jobs, move house, change partner, 
new hobby. Or we escape into busyness, busy, busy, busy. Or escape into another world altogether, a world foreign to your own experience. EastEnders, Coronation Street, anything to ease the repetitive night. Do you know, every time I've said that in all three services, people have turned and smiled at their neighbour. Obviously EastEnders fans. Fourthly, life is unsatisfying. Verse 8. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Few people like to admit what their experience truly tells them. So we always have an answer to how we could change life to make it satisfying. The key is those two words, if only. More recognition, more pay, more promotion. The fault, we say, lies in the circumstances of our lives. And if they could be changed, then our lives would be fulfilled. Then we would be satisfied. But the preacher torpedoes that vain hope with one missile. The eye, he says, never has enough of seeing. Or the ear, it's fill of hearing. Life has an appetite that can never be satisfied. All the changes in the world would make no difference. We spend our lives thinking things will be different round the corner, but often when we get round the corner, it's still the same. Promotion may come, recognition may be given, pay may rise, but we'll always be hungry for more. Now, if you don't believe that, The advertisers certainly do. Our commercial world and and our commercial manufacturers, our commercial world is built on that assumption. Our desire for things is psychotic. Life has a ravenous appetite which is never satisfied. Fifthly, verses 9 and 10, I hope I'm not making you too depressed. There is light at the end of this. Life is unchangeable, verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Uh, You know the French have a saying for this. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they remain the same. Sometimes just abbreviated in that French way. Plus ça change. (laughs) We laugh at it, but we're all conned by it. Our politicians endlessly obsess on choice and change, the twin mantras of all politics. Both sides in the recent US elections simply promised change, as in our own last general election, never quite specifying the change. But we're for change, and you have the choice. 
So we convince ourselves that change is coming. And of course, yes, civilization in some ways does progress and technology certainly advances. Who would have wanted to go to the dentist 100 years ago? But the real problem is that none of our improvements, which are real, improve the things that truly matter in any profound way. We think we've eradicated the TB virus, and thank God we did. But then back it comes, and the more deadly spread of AIDS as well. We build high-rise flats, curing the social ill of homelessness, only to create a new set of worse social problems and a population growth that needs more new homes than ever before. I met Kenneth Cameron from this church on a train the other day. He's on a government think tank to project the needs. He says, right now, we need a million new homes. We break down the Iron Curtain that held the world under threat of nuclear war, only to create a world of global terrorism more unstable than ever. We build new roads to ease the flow of traffic, only to succeed in multiplying the number of cars and just relocate the traffic jams. We constantly change the structures of education and the NHS, but do doctors, nurses and teachers have higher morale? We invent a more refined and streamlined civil service and find ourselves trapped by more bureaucratic red tape and vested interests than ever. The preacher says, there are no real surprises. Life changes outwardly, superficially, but in reality, nothing changes. And sixth and finally, and I think most devastatingly, verse 11, he says life is insignificant. Our public speaker invites us to look back over history to the men of old. It was all so vitally important and significant at the time. But what does it matter now? We remember so little, if anything at all. Great people may have a page in the history books, but most are simply forgotten. And we ourselves will not be remembered. Look how he says it in verse 11. There's no remembrance of men of old. Even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. We'll soon be forgotten. Beyond two generations, nobody will remember who we were. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all her sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream flees at the break of day. Even the most significant in their own day soon become personally insignificant. We think that what we're engaged in is memorable, even important or momentous. But within a generation or two, nobody will ever hear of us or even have heard of us, let alone care. Now that's the truth. Uh, my dear dad, who I still think of probably on a weekly basis, all of his generation, apart from his brother, have gone and he will go soon. In my generation, there's a very few of us who remember him, who give him a thought. In the next generation, my children's generation, he will be a distant memory. And after that, nobody. Absolutely nobody. 
And that's where we're all heading. Uh, looking around the church, I'm not sure if there's any here who are going to completely transform society single-handed and be remembered in the history books. There'll be very, very few of us, if any. Now, is that what life is really like? Boring, fragile, repetitive, unsatisfying, unchangeable, insignificant. If so, it can only result in complete pessimism. I think the teacher, if he were alive today, would annihilate the flimsy philosophies of Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking with their attempts to find meaning out of matter. I think he would demolish them. But his phrase here, just look at it again, under the sun, verse 3, verse 9, verse 14, it reminds us that this is life from a horizontal viewpoint. And that, he says, is the conclusion you must in all honesty, come to. You have to be a fool to believe otherwise. Unless. Unless there is something beyond the sun. Something to change our perspective. Is there something or someone above the sun which would make all the difference of the world. Now, of course, just hoping that doesn't make it real or true. Nevertheless, if it is true, that there is something beyond the sun, that there is a real someone out there, well then, the whole picture changes. Totally, utterly. Do you see what the preacher is trying to do? He's trying to say that the bad news is far worse than you ever dare to contemplate, than you ever normally face. It's infinitely worse than that. But he's going to tell us that the good news is, anything, is, is, is better than anything you ever dreamt of. And just changes Everything. Christianity isn't just a bit of wallpaper over the wall of your life that makes it feel a bit better. It turns black to white. It turns despair to hope. It turns utter negativity and pessimism into joy and good news and light and truth. But the preacher is in no hurry to tell us. In fact, he's not going to tell us for 12 chapters. Just these hints along the way. All he knows at this point is that if you rule God out, life is meaningless. You simply cannot patch together a little bit of meaning for yourself. It just doesn't work. Let me say it again. Without God... Life is meaningless. But we are in a hurry either to get to coffee or to the duck. 
So as I close, will you turn over to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, to another teacher. Ecclesiastes, teacher, has told us what a heavy burden God has laid on men. But in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, another who was also called teacher by his followers, rabbi, you know, I think he might have been thinking of this when he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. And this is what we've been trying to say this Christmas, isn't it? Christmas isn't just sentimentalism. It's not just a lovely story. It's not just pretty myths. It's the news that the God who laid, yes, the gift, but also the burden of life upon us came himself in his son Jesus, to lift that burden. Come to me, all you who weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Surely that's worth exploring. It must be, must be the most important thing to do in 2013. If you've never done the Alpha course, take the opportunity. Come just for the first evening. Hear, listen, ask, say what you believe. So two questions just as I close. Question number one. Is Ecclesiastes, this person, this open-air preacher from long ago, not me, but he, is he speaking to you? Is he speaking to you this evening? There may be quite a spectrum along that line. Some who are just feeling your way towards faith, just beginning to ask these questions. Or maybe further along you've asked and answered these questions, but now you're revisiting them. You're not so sure. Faith maybe have been dented. Well, do something about it. Is Ecclesiastes speaking to you? And second and final question, could you be Ecclesiastes speaking to someone else? Could you be like this man of old to a member of your family or an old friend from school or university or to a neighbor or to a flatmate or to a colleague at work. Could you be that person who doesn't simply bombard them with your own certainties? That's not his method, is it? But begin to raise those questions which most people evade. They simply cannot face it. That's why Christians, to my mind, are the only people who can really face reality. That's my experience. Christians aren't the escapists who run away from reality to church because they can't face the real world. It's the other way around. Christians are the only people who can face the real world. 
Could you be the person who helps people dare to face the dark, to face the hopelessness? Prompt them, make them hungry, thirsty for God with your questions, maybe with bits of your testimony, with an invitation to the Alpha Course, with a book that you lend them. Let's stand, shall we? Um, I'm going to pray a simple prayer, then we'll sing something, and um, then we'll just give an opportunity for a final response. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, gracious Holy Spirit, come to you this evening as you bid us to whatever the state we're in after a Christmas and a new year. Maybe we're encouraged in our faith. Maybe we've got questions. And wherever we are, in whatever position with regard to you, whether you're in the foreground or the background, whether you're a real intimate presence in our life or a distant shadow, wherever we are, Father, we pray that you would help us by leading us forward into this new year. Guide us, direct us. Help us to take whatever steps for ourselves, our own benefit, and for the blessing and benefit of others around us that would be right and true and please you and bring hope and help and light and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.